welcome to Understanding Dysphagia Podcast, a 10-part series with Dysphagia Outreach Project. I am your host, Michelle Dawson, MSCCC, SLP, CLC, regularly the host of First Bite Fed Fun Functional, a speech therapy podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. In honor of Dysphagia Awareness Month, the Dysphagia Outreach Project has pulled some of their amazing leaders together to share their knowledge with the world in hopes of raising awareness about dysphagia across the life continuum, as well as raising awareness regarding their dynamic volunteer work that Dysphagia Outreach Project does every day for individuals across the lifespan with dysphagia. And this episode is dedicated to the SLP's role in advocacy. This is like a favorite topic of mine. So without further ado, please allow me to introduce today's guest. Jessica Kahn is a visiting clinical instructor at Stephen F. Austin State University in some city in Texas. Jessica, how do I say that? Nacogdoches. There it is. With significant experience in the medical field. In addition to supervising graduate students in their on-site clinic, she teaches undergraduate and graduate coursework, including dysphagia and neurogenic communication disorders. Jessica is the owner and endoscopist of East Texas Swallow Diagnostics, a mobile fees company serving the broader East Texas area. Currently, Jessica serves as the Director of University Relations for Dysphagia Outreach Project, and Jessica is pursuing a PhD in Health Sciences at Northern Illinois University. Our other guest is Hillary Cooper, a self-proclaimed dysphagia nerd who has extensive experience with pediatrics and adults in a variety of settings. She owns North Louisiana Swallow Solutions, a mobile fees company. She also works as adjunct clinical instructor at University of Louisiana at Monroe. She's co-owner of Evolutionary Education Solutions, a CEU company. She serves as a peer mentor for the Medical SLP Collective and is the publication chair for the Louisiana Speech-Language Hearing Association. She has found a love of all things teaching and shares her knowledge with universities and state SLP organizations around the country. And she's been featured on many SLP podcasts. Her love of advocating led her to create the Dysphagia Outreach Project, which is the project that brings her more joy than anything else and kind of the whole reason that we're here today. So can we get a whoop, whoop? That's where y'all say whoop, whoop. Okay. Um, so, hi. Okay. So advocacy is my jam. I am past president of the South Carolina Speech Language Hearing Association, and I served as VP of Governmental Affairs. And that's how I got into the whole First Bite podcast piece, because knowledge, knowledge should not be charged for. It should be free and it should be shared with the world. So this is one of my greatest loves. So Jessica and Hillary, I am honored and humbled that y'all are here today. So thank you, thank you, thank you for being y'all and for creating this amazing project. Like this is huzzah, well done. <laughs> well, thank you for oh, having absolutely. us. Yes, I'm talking over Jessica. Yes, no, thank you for having us. And, and honestly, you know, everyone who's come into this organization is what makes it as amazing as it is. And everyone who's joined into our cause has that same passion for advocacy. So, you know, I think it's something that binds us all together and keeps us moving forward, even though it's a lot of work. So, so excited to be here. Thank you. Yes, it's a lot of work. That's like the understatement of the century. Yes. Yes, yes, but it is. 
Okay, so Jessica, let me start with you. Can you um, ever so briefly tell us kind of how you came to be an SLP and then um, kind of what pulled you into the Dispatch Outreach Project? Yeah, absolutely. So I always tell my students that it doesn't matter why you became an SLP. What matters is that you're here. So, for example, I wanted to own a daycare and my best friend was going to major in speech path. And she's like, you know, you need money for that. Right. I was like, oh yeah, yeah I guess so. So then I took an intro class and that was that. It, it sucks you in, right? <laughs> that intro class. And it's always my favorite one to talk to students about because you get to see a little bit of everything and they just are so excited at that point. So I started off in an outpatient rehab clinic. Um, I was very pregnant when I got hired for my CFY, so I was thankful to get a job. And I'm in a really rural area, right? No one has heard of Nacogdoches. It's not Dallas. It's not Houston. It's not Austin. We are three. I didn't even know how to say it. I know. It's so hard. And so I would have patients coming to me from two hours away, from three hours away, because we were the only outpatient office that took their insurance. And so I just really experienced the disparities in healthcare, especially in rural settings, and that I I was the only person speaking up for these patients sometimes because they were just so isolated. You know, it's not like in home health where you have access to nurses and your doctor really easily. When you're looking at outpatient in rural areas, it's, it's pretty limited. And so when Hillary had started creating the dysphagia outreach with our co-founders, I really just wanted to make sure they understood like students need to be a part of this. Students need to understand how important it is to advocate for our patients, especially those with dysphagia and how so many people don't get resources. And, you know, and Hillary's been in rural areas, so she's always understood that. And so when they asked me to join as the university relations director, I was over the moon. <laughs> so we, we, we actually begged her to join. I was like, <laughs> I can't do this without you, Jessica. Your brain is brilliant and we need you. Um, please, please, please come join this thing. <laughs> Twisted her arm a little bit and she came on board. <laughs> so I, I had no idea that DOP had a university relations. And so I'm the clinic coordinator at Francis Marion University in Florence, South Carolina, and um, home of the Patriots. So huzzah, <laughs> FMU. Um, and just just heads up, I'll be reaching out to you um, this summer because oh, yeah, clinic absolutely. class is Thursday morning and at, at nine. So hit, hit. <laughs> zooming at its finest, right? <laughs> we have a lot of really exciting projects that should be starting to come out, but you know, anything in academia takes time to finalize. So we've got to get it there first. Yes, we've we've got some things that we've been working on for a good while now that aren't quite ready to be you know, announced yet, but when they do, oh my goodness, game changing stuff that Jessica's working on. It's amazing. That's awesome. Well, I will, I will gladly and joyfully introduce you to Dr. Afua Ajapong. She's our voice and craniofacial specialist and the head of Nishla. So I would, I would love to introduce you to her because I'm sure our students would want to jump on, but yes. Okay. All right. Squirrel, all the squirrels. Okay. Now, Hillary, how did you become an SLP? And like ever since, I know we're going to do a whole one on the history of DOP, but can you kind of snapshot us to how this came to pass? Well, absolutely. I, you know, was originally a pharmacy major and and then I actually did an observation and was like, oh no, this is not for me. So I went to the university, <laughs> I went to the university um, 
career counseling office and they did a whole bunch of aptitude tests. And so they were like, you should be a speech pathologist. And I was like, okay, I'll try it. And, you know, I went and took my intro courses and the rest was history. I just found a love for it. And, you know, I, I did my, my clinical fellowship in Louisiana and then moved up to the North part of Louisiana and open a private practice and a whole bunch of stuff. And I, like Jessica, noticed specifically with my private practice when I was servicing home health patients that I had to buy them supplies so often that I started keeping blenders and thickeners in my trunk because it was such a frequent occurrence for me to go into a family's home and have them be on puree for you know various reasons. And them not have a way to puree their food. And, you know, they're telling me, well, I can't afford to buy a blender or a food chopper or thickeners. And so I was buying them out of pocket. And I started to ask myself, why isn't there, you know, is maybe a food bank can help out for these people. And I looked around, couldn't find any resources to service specifically this population. And the food bank stuff was sort of hit or, hit or miss. Sometimes they would have things, sometimes, most of the time not. They didn't understand the need specifically. And so I just decided to say it out loud and make it happen. And a whole bunch of people jumped on board immediately. Jessica Lasky and Michelle Cafaro helped me get everything off the ground. And we put together a dream team of SLPs. And within, gosh, we've been over just a little over two years. And we've grown from, you know, just me having a seed of an idea to us having over 100 active recurring volunteers, plus hundreds more on our list that we just don't have jobs for quite yet. And, you know, we've helped hundreds of families and we have a warehouse and all of that. So it's just mind blowing how it's grown from just a thought and an idea that I had to this because so many people are passionate about the advocacy component of it and they see the injustice and in healthcare and the systemic inequality in our healthcare system. And this is a way to advocate for those patients to get what they need. But then also our longer term goal is to advocate for systemic change. You're talking to the girl who works in the deep South and sees <laughs> sexism every single day. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's the people who have the least that are put in these situations where they have to choose between providing their family member yes. with what they need or paying yes, the electric is, bill. And it's yes. heartbreaking. Oh my gosh. So much. Yes. I, our <laughs> university is at the start of the I-95 corridor of shame right down. Sorry. That's like historical reference. There's a lawsuit called the Abbeville school district lawsuit because the I-95 corridor of shame, there's 22 school districts that have sued, sued um, our state successfully and it's still taking 21 years and they're still in the process of justifying and getting tax dollars to those school districts because of racial disparity. So, yeah, and it's everywhere. You know, I think it's boggling to my mind that Medicaid will pay for a feeding tube for a child or an adult with so many supplies that they're literally begging people to take them away from them because we get calls and emails all the time asking us to take that stuff, which we don't currently. And you know, but they won't pay for thickener or they won't pay for adaptive equipment to keep someone on an oral diet or they won't purchase, you know, specialty bottles to keep a child on an oral diet, but they'll pay for a feeding tube in, in the procedure to get all of that done. And it just boggles my mind that that is an, a problem that we have. 
So one thought thinking out out loud, and I'm going to put this in the universe, my future sister-in-law, as long as my kid brother doesn't mess things up and I will cut him if he does, because I claim my sister-in-law, even though she's not technically my sister-in-law, she's a national lobbyist with National Down Syndrome Society. And Nicole knows amazing, kind-hearted, passionate people and having that has to be a national change in order absolutely. to absolutely absolutely and sidebar. part of that is Let's have that. sidebar absolutely and we do have a research project going on right now to sort of define that problem because i feel like if we were to go to congress right now and say there's a problem they're going to say okay show me the numbers guess what there are no numbers <laughs> so i'm currently working on a, a research project to help put numbers to the problem so that we can then advocate to it and we can't really make change without having some sort of documentation that there's a problem in the first place. So I think I that have an that's... idea. Okay, that's a whole nother that's a phone call conversation, baby. Let's okay. We gotta I gotta keep us on track. But like, y'all, this is how literally this is how advocacy happens. You you have a conversation with a colleague, identify the problem, but in one breath, it is insufficient to raise awareness about a problem unless in that second you work to resolve it. And if you've ever heard me on first bite, that is, it is, it is that second breath, pull up your big girl drawers, put them on, keep on trucking. Okay. Squirrel. So many, so many joyful things are happening. Okay. Talk to me about what is advocacy. I mean, I think you led into it right there. Advocacy without action is just education, which is an important step and you have to have it, but you need that action there. So when we look at advocacy, there's the traditional view of it's going and it's changing or recommending a change to policy, right? That's, I think, what most people understand it as. If you go to the research there's not any research. <laughs> There's one article where they went to occupational therapists, like what is advocacy? What does that word mean to you? And, and it was a small study, but that, that's really almost it. If we look at the nursing literature, there's a little bit more. Of course, their role is a little different than ours with patients. But they did, there's one article, it's patient advocacy in nursing, a concept analysis. And they have five kind of components of advocacy. And I just really love it. So the first one is safeguarding, making sure that there are no medical errors. Again, nursing has a different role in this, but we have a huge role in this, especially with dysphagia, making sure that they have, you know, an appropriate diagnosis, that they're on, you know, the best diet for them, the diet consistency for them based off deficits and their personal preferences, not just our opinion. The second component is appraising the patient. So giving them the information about their diagnosis, making sure they fully understand it, valuing the patient. We are helping them to make their decisions freely, mediating for them, being that liaison. And I think especially SLPs feel this. I always joke, it's like we're a social worker, a nurse, a teacher, and a SLP all rolled into one sometimes. <laughs> and then that fifth attribute is the traditional championing for social justice. And I, I just really love those components. I think it breaks it down pretty succinctly so that you can see the roles that we have with these patients. 
And I think it's interesting that I was talking to Dr. Kate Crivell about um, advocacy and, you know, she had started talking to her graduate students about it. And she said when she asked her SLP graduate students, what is advocacy? Their answer was almost invariably, oh, posting on social media about something and (laughs) missing all of this. So I think that goes back to we should be teaching advocacy in our graduate level curriculums so that they know that it's more than just getting on social media and posting an image or supporting something or donating to a campaign. It's it's more than that, and that we can bring a lot of different advocacy tools into our daily practice with our clients. So that last part of the definition, can you read that one one more time, Jessica? The championing social justice? Yes, that right there. That's our sweet friend, Kelly Caldwell. Mm-hmm. I get this is my opportunity to give credit where credit is due. Yes. Kelly, that is advocacy and action. I'm biased. I'm a skisha girl, but Kelly is the current VP of governmental affairs for the South Carolina Speech Language Hearing Association. She was able to listen to our members complain about the, our patients were having a difficulty accessing clinicians, accessing speech-language pathologists for services that were necessary because for some reason, simply our CPT codes went erroneous. They ended up on the CPT code for dysphagia eval ended up on the midwife CPT code list in this uh, in the Medicaid manual because, you know, midwives are really, really nice at diagnosing dysphagia. And I believe the treatment CPT code for dysphagia ended up on the physical therapist or the audiologist list. And that's, I mean, an audiologist is, they're kindred spirits, but not so great at treating dysphagia. Kelly, I got to witness her in action. Not only did she raise awareness, but she brought, she offered, she put in so much work. She had graphs, she had resolutions. And just this past week, we met with the Department of Health and Human Services, and she presented the data on behalf of speech language pathologists and the patients that we are called to serve to uh, a deputy director and to their assistant. And she did it succinctly. It was, here's the CPT codes. This is a patient access across all settings issue. And this is the appropriate reimbursement rate advocating for our profession as well. And it was fantastic. The um, deputy director thanked her and graciously multiple times and ask for two immediate follow-up meetings so that they could rectify the problem that she identified and worked tirelessly to resolve. And here's the thing, anybody that's listening, I can hear in your soul that you're thinking, well, that's ASHA's responsibility. Absolutely not. ASHA only has national level lobbyists. Y'all have had the honor of serving as treasurer for the Council of State Association Presidents. I can tell you right now, ASHA does not have representation at the state level. That is your state association, which I'd like to point out, a lot of your DOP volunteers are involved in their state associations. Yes, we are. And I think that that's where, you know, like our state organization right now is advocating for caseload caps for SLPs in the school systems. And, you know, there's so many really valuable, we just advocated for um, participation in the um, interstate compact with licensure compact. 
Y'all got so it approved. We did. Yes. It's, yes. it's been adopted in 10 states now. So it's moving into the next phase and then more states are going to be added to it. So those are the things that happen at the state level. So, you know, as a member of, you know, the board member of the Louisiana Speech Language Hearing Association, you know, I think that it's okay. You know, I hear a lot of people say, well, Asha doesn't do this and Asha doesn't do that. But what have you done <laughs> to join your state organization to make those meaningful changes? You know, I had people complain that Louisiana um, wasn't very dysphagia inclusive or met SLP inclusive. And so I, I went to the board and I was like, hey, can we make our conference more met SLP inclusive? And now we are. It's, it's you know, a solid 50-50 with the medical and then the, the school-based stuff. So I think that you can make changes. You just have to get out there and do it. I had a, one of my mentors, Teresa Richard, actually told me, you know, you have two choices. You can either complain about something. That's not the word she used, but you can either <laughs> complain about it or you can do something about it. And, you know, that's why that was the inspiration for me starting my mobile fees business. And that was the inspiration for starting, you know, one of the things that helped me get the confidence to start uh, the Dysphagia Outreach Project and, you know, various other projects that I've been doing since then. It's like you either can complain about the problem or you can put your feet down on the ground, put one foot in front of the other and make it happen. Yes. My, my daddy told me that. He said, darling, you can fuss again, not the <laughs> exact word about an issue, but with that next breath, put big girl britches on and work to resolve it. That's where that phrase comes from. My dad in um, White Oak, Virginia, which is basically known for its one stoplight and its lean-tos. And I come from a long, proud line of fine distilleries. Distillerers back in the woods. (laughs) (laughs) It's all right. My entire family has all of their teeth. So I have that credit. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you go a couple generations back, not necessarily the case, but I mean, clean up. All right. Okay. All right. So we, we talk about SLPs and the role of advocacy, hint, hint, volunteer with the state outreach project, volunteer with your state association. Those will be game changers. But what about for our patients and our caregivers advocating for their patients with dysphagia? Can we talk about that level of advocacy? Because that's that's sometimes harder. No, and I think a lot of the times the the quick answer is, well, just educate yourself, learn all about it. But that's not fair for us to put that entire burden on them. So to put it more succinctly, when we have, when you have a loved one or you are a patient with dysphagia, pushing for that instrumental swallowing assessment, finding out what's actually going on in its entirety. Absolutely. And if in this is something that I run into is, you know, you may have a healthcare provider who's not willing or able to do instrumentals. And in that case, we really I advocate for those um, individuals to get a second opinion to go somewhere else. And if you have someone who says, Oh, I have magic fingers, and I can palpate and I can use my stethoscope and determine aspiration, then that's a red flag that maybe you should be asking for a second opinion and advocate for the instrumental. You wouldn't second guess it if you had, you know, fallen and your arm was hurting, you would get an x-ray with no problem. So, you know, looking at and educating our our families that instrumentals are the beginning of the uh, the ability to accurately diagnose and treat dysphagia um, for pediatrics or adults. And I know with peds, it's harder sometimes to get those instrumentals, but advocating for your, if you're an SLP, advocating for your facility to offer more instrumentals and, you know, open more spots so that you can 
meet the need that is there in the community. I think, you know, there's a lot of, it all begins with the instrumental. Like if we suspect dysphagia, we should be getting an instrumental. We can't treat what we can't see. And the instrumental is the place to start. So my CF was at a rural hospital way out in the country, Riverside Walter Reed and in Gloucester County, Virginia. Gloucester County's one claim to fame is that Walter Reed was born there. <laughs> so like, <laughs> everything. Congratulations. Awesome. We're thriving on the 1700s. And uh, any, anywho, um, so that was my CF. I was the first full-time SLP at a rural hospital treating inpatient adults, outpatient, everything from two to 99, right? They would send their patients, if they were medically stable, 45 minutes to the nearest hospital that had capacities for instrumental. Now you're talking, this is Michelle and her CF, who's naive and thinking that everybody has easy access to an instrumental. Like that's, you go through grad school and you learn best practice and then you enter your CF and you're like, holy crap, the world's horrible because it's rubber meets the road. Y'all, I had to put together a package on cost benefit, cost risk benefit analysis or some combination of those words. And then after all of that work of preparing the, the cost of, of the modified chair, the cost of the barium, the shelf life of everything, there I am like this 24-year-old kid wet behind the ears while I was 26, but like still trying to put it all together. At the end of the day, my PT manager turns to me and he goes, Michelle, you're going before a board of 60 to 70-year-old men. It's like, okay. He goes, wear the red dress with the black suit. And I was like, I'm sorry, what? He goes, wear the red dress with the black boots. That will give you the approval that you need. And honest to God, I don't think they looked at any of the numbers aside from the red dress and the black leather high boots. But you know what? We got the necessary equipment. Now, I'm not advocating that y'all go out buy a red dress and black boots. But at the end of the day, I don't know if it was my benefit package or the outfit. That's embarrassing to admit, but... We had to advocate and it was rural, older, middle-aged doctors. So. I mean, I think that brings up a really good point though. And that's when you are advocating, you need to know your audience, what their perspective <laughs> is and what's important to them. They didn't care about the benefits old men. of the patients. I mean, they probably cared about the money maybe. And so maybe the money wasn't so outrageous, but then you had, I guess, good advice for the time. And that's so unfortunate. Girl, I live in East Texas. I promise I know and have seen that happen too. Um, <laughs> but you do, you do have to know your audience. If you're advocating to an administrator, speak their language. If you're advocating to another doctor, speak their language. If you're advocating to SLPs, to patients, to family members, to whoever, what you say to them is going to be different. Yes. If you're advocating to the CNA as to why they actually need to utilize thickener, make sure it doesn't come across as condescending. Right. You're on a team together. Yes. Yes. And that, that I have witnessed. And pediatrics, pediatric feeding disorders, y'all, that world between colleagues, I mean, just, it can be nasty. No, it, it really can and I don't know why that has evolved in that manner, but it's become who's the better clinician based upon who can make a better TikTok. The tick of the talk does not tell you your clinical skills, right? Absolutely. And I think, you know, it's that way in um, adult dysphagia as well. You know, I think that 
we're so quick to cut each other down instead of lifting each other up for the things that we're doing amazing. And my philosophy has always been to not engage in that ugliness and just do my best to rise, help people rise up every day. And, you know, because of that, I have made some of my best friends that I will have my entire life because of, you know, just being willing to answer questions of clinicians on Facebook and engaging in conversation and and educating our um, peers in, in things and being open to do it rather than looking down and saying, Oh, you do that. Okay. Well, maybe I used to do that 10 years ago before I learned better. Yes. That's just it. You learned better. Evolution and clinical skills, knowledge. Yes. And the patients and their families, they're not blind to all of this going on. I mean, they, they can see it and they can feel it. So being able to empower the the patients and the SLPs around you to empower their patients that it, it's the patient's right to make these decisions. It's not because you are the be all end all of knowledge on this topic. It, it's still up to the patient. Absolutely. And one of my favorite things to educate our patients about is the Patient Self-Determination Act of 1990. It's, it's one of the areas that I feel clinicians don't know about as much as they should. And families certainly don't know about it. We know that health literacy is definitely an issue amongst many of our our patients and their families. So, you know, as SLPs, again, like Jessica was saying earlier, part of our job is to educate them about their rights, that they have federally protected rights um, through the Patient Self-Determination Act of 1990, that they, we inform them of those rights. Now, you know, typically this comes up with the end of life stuff, but I think it's so important to bring it up way before that that our parent our parents of children with dysphagia our caregivers our individuals with dysphagia have the right to to participate actively in the decisions made in their healthcare and we should not sit on our dysphagia thrones and say you have to have this diet or you're going to die from pneumonia and i think that we did that for a long time but we're there's this culture of change and we're learning better but putting words to it and talking about the patient self determination act of 1990 and how we should be when when a patient goes into a hospital or, or a you know a child or an adult goes into a hospital it is required by law to have to ask about the patient self their um their advanced directives right so it's it's the law to ask about that you know and we think of advanced directives being like code status so you know are they going to have CPR if their heart stops or are we just going to let them pass peacefully but it's really more than that it it covers you know their wishes regarding oral diets feeding tubes those kinds of things and as clinicians who work with dysphagia patients, we should be asking them, you know, what are their wishes? What are their goals with dysphagia? Does it, I mean, are they willing to have a feeding tube or are they just absolutely not? That's nope, that's not going to happen. I am never going to have a feeding tube. And you have to take that into account when you're making their treatment plan and respect that. It's not just an ethics issue that, you know, it is an ethics issue, but it's not just being polite or, you know, doing something extra. It is federal law. <laughs> we have to do this. So it's not just something ASHA made up for us to do. It is the law and we are required by law to, to take into account their wishes. And I think that sometimes that gets dropped on the wayside um, and families need to really push to make sure that their wishes are 
expressed. And clinicians on the other side need to be asking our patients for their wishes and then respecting them and upholding them and then educating other providers on the interdisciplinary team to also uphold and respect those wishes as well. So I've had, you know, as a mobile fees provider, tons of cases pop up where, you know, a patient aspirates on all consistencies. The physician is saying, oh, we got to put a feeding tube in, but the family says, absolutely not. We're not going to do a feeding tube. And my job is to educate that MD. Okay, well, look, you know, this family does not want a feeding tube in this patient and that's their right to choose that. They've documented in their advanced directive And so this is what we're going to do instead. And then I outline, you know, a treatment plan that balances both safety for the patient and their wishes. And a lot of times when that happens, the physicians um, are like, oh, wow, okay, yeah, cool. That makes sense. And they sign off and they're, they're happy with it. So I think that it's one of those things that we have to educate our families about it and we have to educate each other and make sure that we stay up on asking for their advanced directives as well. Yeah, it goes back to those five attributes of advocacy, valuing the patient and their wishes, and then mediating the deficits with their wishes with the other providers as well, being that liaison for them. So I don't see that happening in the peds world. And I treat palliative care patients a lot. And we just had an issue within our state early intervention system where they actually passed a proclamation that they were going to terminate early intervention for patients that were um, placed on hospice, which upset me significantly on the grounds that once a patient is made hospice, it's no longer educationally appropriate. I understand that. However, our state early intervention system and Medicaid are so intertwined because of a couple of decisions that were made that at the same time, if right now, if the patient doesn't have Medicaid and their private insurance doesn't cover, you bill the private insurance, then you bill Medicaid and then baby nets the payer of last resort. But if their private insurance doesn't cover speech therapy, then baby net was covering it. What about for those patients that are responsible for quality of life, end of life, pleasure feeding. Don't they deserve that for hospice? Like, isn't that's, that's our job. And if you get on ASHA and you look at, at hospice quality of life stuff that there's a plethora of information for adults, but y'all, I have lost pediatric patients because of the nature of their genetic conditions, the nature and severity of their CVAs, and, and, and they too warrant those end-of-life decisions. And, and I wonder how they're getting away with that because the patient self-determination, and I'm not a lawyer, but the Patient Self-Determination Act of 1990 has five components. So the first one is that we have to inform patients of the rights to make an advanced directive. The second one is that we have to inquire periodically to make sure that they haven't, to see if they've updated it or changed it. The third one, this is the one that has me scratching my head right now, is that it is illegal at the federal level to discriminate against persons or withhold treatment for persons who have executed an advanced directive. So if someone chooses an option for their health care to be able to discriminate against them and withhold services to them is illegal at the federal level. 
So yep. just like and then uh, they're nursing homes, <laughs> yeah, nursing homes cannot um, refuse to admit a patient who is DNR, or they can't refuse to admit a patient who is full code. So, you know, if they have multiple comorbidities, they can't refuse a patient's admittance on that behalf. So I'm kind of curious about that. And I wonder if, if someone's looked at that. But then the, the fourth component is to make sure that we are also upholding their advanced directives and their wishes to the extent that it's legal within the states. And that we also provide education programs and such for the staff and everybody. In most uh, facilities, it's like a yearly training about recognizing advanced directives and those kinds of things. So, you know, the number three and four, that has me scratching my head that they can get away with that with the Patient Self-Determination Act of, of 1990. And it makes me wonder that it's just, it blows my mind how often we don't think about this law and, you know, that we have to advocate for it to be um, enforced. So when y'all are u- utilizing your dysphagia outreach project university liaisons, may I suggest that? And may I also make an unsolicited suggestion that um, an excellent way of utilizing the volunteers on your wait list is having a PowerPoint presentation pre-prepared for your volunteers to put in a call for papers at their state association conferences. No, absolutely. Yeah. That's definitely something that, yeah, I think, you know, we can all band together to make a change. And um, that's how we've gotten as far as we have so quickly in a, in a year where nonprofits were shutting down left and right. Dysphagia Outreach Project grew because of the the need with COVID and people losing income and, and the need for the supplies that we provide through our food bank, but also, you know, everybody recognizing that we have to join together to make big change. And we're not in separate camps. It's not, this is a pediatric only. It's not, this is an adult only kind of thing. It's a life continuum. Absolutely. And I think, you know, some of my, some of my colleagues who are pediatric focused um, just eternally laugh that, you know, an SLP who's adult focused 80% or 90%, I think it sort of varies between 80 and 90% of our current recipients are pediatric. So primarily pediatric recipients right now, but I, you know, it kind of ebbs and flows, but you know, and they think it's hilarious that, you know, the adult SLP is, you know, learning about Dr. Brown's bottles and all the wonderful things <laughs> that we can do with our pediatric population. Maroon spoons for days. Oh my God. I love me a maroon spoon. Even Chewbacca can't chew through a maroon spoon. That's a good spoon, dude. You know what? And we were, we were fortunate enough to have the actual original um, makers of the maroon spoon, the equipment shop provide us with hundreds of them for our recipients. So, you know, I, and it's one of those things where we told them what we were doing. They're very passionate about advocacy and they were like, well, sign us up. (laughs) And I love it. Um, so, you know, it's, it's our, our donors, it's our people who come in they see the cause and they see what we're trying to do. And then our long-term goals, you know, with championing for advocacy and change over time. Um, and unfortunately these things do take time, but you know, there are some things though that SLPs can do right now to advocate. So some of the long game stuff, you know, Dysphage Outreach Project, we have that going. Jessica's working on a lot of really, really cool stuff. And I can't wait till that comes out. In our other teams, we have some really awesome projects in in, uh, the works, including this amazing podcast. Thank you so much, Michelle. But, you know, I think, 
you know, there's, there's definitely a lot of things that can be done right now. So if you're kind of an instant gratification person, <laughs> there's definitely a lot on the table for that. Yeah. I okay, wait, I'm dying. <laughs> Yeah, you paused and I'm like, okay, well, what is it? I was <laughs> just to let Jessica talk. I figured I could like hand the torch over to her. <laughs> I know, but I was like literally on the edge of my chair. Don't, I mean, come on, people are driving, listening to this. Don't do that. <laughs> I know, and now they're really wanting to rest. We were building up, up the suspense, the bum, bum, bum. <laughs> My favorite All right, Jessica, thing, lay it out, baby. <laughs> my favorite thing for people to advocate for their patients right now is something you can do right now that has a long-term impact. So mentoring students, letting them come with you, and teaching them how to advocate for those future patients that they're going to see. The same thing with CFYs, feeling willing to help support them in this really hard journey, especially now, can make such a big lasting impact. With your patients okay, who have can I? I, I have I have a I have a thing right there. You just hit a <laughs> heartfelt moment. I am in a unique position where part of my job responsibilities is coordinating external clinical practicums. Oh, that's a hard job too. That is that yes, this is a hard job because everybody's one worried about productivity. But I have witnessed firsthand more explicit racism and explicit bias in placing students for clinical practicums than I ever thought possible. That's just heartbreaking. And, you know, as someone who takes students regularly, you know, I, it just breaks my heart. Yes. I, I have, I have had to power through a significant amount of anger. I mean, like I'm Irish y'all. I can, we can a hot mad and I mean you throw Irish and Cherokee blood and a little bit of Padawamic in this tiny body that well ain't as tiny as it used to be who kid but we can hold a mad right two children later I'm like one day one day I'll fit a size six again ha but that's that's not okay so right here right now if you we, we have to have that crucial conversation we have to be able to reflect upon the, the implicit and explicit biases within our own profession. So if someone from a HBCU re- university reaches out, or, and, and the university that I work at is not, do not at face value say no. My goodness, say yes, and let's fix it. Because this is... I'm, I'm so righteous anger advocacy. We can do better. Absolutely. I know. Like, I'm like, like, yeah, that like gets my, my feathers ruffled as well. And, you know, one of the reasons that I, I love the university I'm with right now is they, you know, are very dedicated to changing that culture within our field and we don't take that crap. So I love it. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, that's exactly my university. And, and this is, I am honored and humbled that I get to be there. So let's fix that. All right, Jessica, I'm sorry. That was a really emotional soapbox. Continue. No, 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 you're fine. And you're not the only person, <laughs> you're not the only one that sees that. You know, we we actually have our most diverse class, I think, this year than we've had in a little bit with just a variety of backgrounds and ethnicities. And I had a student come to me and say, you know, Ms. Khan, I, I'm worried about having to drive more than 40 minutes in rural East Texas. 
And so we, we, we tried to take that into account for her because that was an experience that she has had that we probably wouldn't have ever even considered because it hasn't been our experience. And we need to be really proactive of looking at all of the possible experiences that the students under our care are going to have. And it's just so many people are not willing to even just try to look and understand it. And that's just infuriating. And it's the same thing with patients. So many of us with our patients look at them, we're like, okay, well, here are my beliefs. Here's what I think. So this obviously that's how you think too. That's how you make decisions. And that's probably not the case for the most part. I think it's really important with with everything, but with patients you have in front of you to use that shared decision-making model, not just you telling them, here's what's best, not them asking, well, what would you do if it was your mom, but you sitting down and having that conversation with them. And I know I wasn't taught this in grad school, how to do that. Hillary, I think you said you weren't either when we talked about it last. Yeah. And we talked a lot about counseling and things in my grad program, but you know, this, this new thing that you showed me just blew my mind and I love it and I want everyone to have it. Yeah, so it's the Ottawa Personal Decision Guide, and it's it's literally the cutest fillable PDF that you could ever imagine. But it, <laughs> it walks you through how to, to make a decision, and you can use this for anything. So when I taught it in class, we all were trying to decide where to eat for dinner, even though everything was closed because it's a night class, and it was okay. depressing. <laughs> Wait, what it, okay, one that's terrible, but what is it called? The <laughs> Ottawa Decision? The per, Ottawa Personal Decision Guide. Okay, I found the Ottawa Decision Support Framework. Apparently, Ottawa is the place to go, and I don't know how to spell Ottawa. So that <laughs> I just learned a lot about myself in a brief period of time. Yeah, and we'll be able to get the link out for people when this podcast airs. That way they can go to it. But, I mean, it, it takes the individual's knowledge, their values, how certain they feel about a decision, what support they have, and it factors all that in to kind of just lay it out in front of them to help make that decision. And, you know, as SLPs, like we're checking, okay, do you really understand the benefits and risk of this decision? Do you really understand the social impacts of being on a diet that's maybe not something you can find easily at a restaurant or that it has extra prep? And it walks through all these things to just kind of bring them to that decision. And at the end, it says, you know, are there any other factors? Is there anything else you could try? Is there anybody else you could follow up with? And it's, it's really thorough. And I just really love it. And I didn't know I could be that excited about a fillable PDF, but I just am. But it really is. It's so cute. It's and so cute. it's so user it friendly. And just easy to walk through. And, and I don't think you have to have an extensive, you know, training on shared decision making to be able to just pull this up and use it and walk through it with your patient. I think it's something you could use right now, whether it's a pediatric case or an adult case. It's it's something that really just helps us make sure that we're doing our best to respect our patients' wishes and walk them through making the decision without making it for them. I think we also all recognize that we're visual learners when yeah. we're excited about the colors. and the, <laughs> it, It's like, y'all, it's reminiscent of PEC, not PECs, of board maker, but not quite. And it's visually aesthetically pleasing. So if you're a visual learner, I highly recommend it. <laughs> I really like the little guy by certainty. Well, and what I like about it is you can... You can print it after you filled it out with your patient or your caregiver. You can print it out and they can take it home with them because I can't tell you how many times I've gone to, you know, especially when my dad was terminally ill, 
a doctor's appointment and then the doctor would, you know, spew a whole bunch of different options on the table for treatments and medications, but here's the side effects of this and here's the option of that and da 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 da. And then I leave and I'm like, I can only recall maybe one out of every five words that that doctor just said. But with this, it you know, you can print it out, you can send it with them. And then when they question their judgment, which they're allowed to do, they can say, why did I make this decision in the first place? And if they change their mind, then they can say, you know what, this I, I, I has changed and I want to change my mind, which is their, also their right to do so. So I just love that you can print it out and give it to them and have it be a, a resource for them as well. That's, this is what's missing for, for peds. There's, there, there's questions and surveys out there for parents of children with like swallowing disorders for like decision-making trees, but nothing that's as functional. And like, you know, you try to apply the, what is it? The FEM scores for peds, but then you're basing that upon the caregiver and not the child. And when I, when I think about our children with PFD that are school age that have ASD and can communicate their wants and needs, whether that be verbal, ASL, AAC, low tech or high tech, we have to take their self-advocacy and what they're telling us as well. And that's incredibly powerful. So if anybody's looking to do some research, I would love to see some research tying that in with a child that has a PFD being able to tell us what they want and, and why. Well, and I'm my research I'm doing for my PhD, it's with adults who have dementia. But one of the things that I'm really starting to dig into is that when we look at quality of life, the self-reported quality of life of the individual focuses on their preferences. The proxy reported quality of life from the caregiver looks at how safe they are or their quality of care. It's not really looking at quality of life. And so that perspective, isn't that just insane? Like I never even considered that. And so, so many people look at individuals with dementia, individuals who have autism or other cognitive issues, and they think, well, they can't determine their quality of life. They don't know, but they do. It's still their life. Well, and I think even in the palliative and hospice population, you know, my father, when he was terminally ill, um, developed dysphagia towards the end. And, you know, the hospice company was advocating for an instrumental and they were concerned about, you know, aspiration and all that. He had a lung disease. And, but their concern was safety. Their concern was, you know, prolonging life, which, you know, I'm not going to knock them for that. And, you know, had a very good hospice company that took care of him. But at the end of the day, as his POA and as a dysphagia specializing SLP, you know, I had to say, no, we're not going to do an instrumental. No, he's going to eat whatever he wants to this. You know, it's that don't order tests that don't affect the management kind of situation. And, I, you know, I chose, he chose, you know, after talking to him and knowing what his wishes are, he chose quality over quantity. And at the end of the day, dysphagia isn't what killed him. <laughs> his his condition is what killed him. But, um, you know, he enjoyed that one last pleasure until the very end. And I think that, you know, if the hospice company had had their way, you know, we would have had him on a, a very restrictive modified diet, which would have decreased his quality of life. So my pop, my granddaddy worked the fields. He failed three grades twice because he was working the fields for ski, but like, that's another story, but like, you know, corn. And uh, 
pop um, took his money, put it into real estate, and he and my grandma that my grandma that just passed they uh, they paid for my master's degree. And pop's version of high quality meals was a Arby's roast beef and cheddar cheese sandwich with extra roast beef. And you know what he wanted right up until he couldn't chew anymore was an Arby's roast beef. And cheddar cheese sandwich with extra roast beef, which is like so many synthetic things, I feel like, especially back in the day. But quality, man, quality right up right until the end. And but our tiny humans want that too. And 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 that's where that's where adaptive equipment comes in. I had one little guy who was born without his brain and he only had a brain stem, but he had a uh you had a brainstem and, and a tiny little bit of um, what they thought was a cerebellum potential. It was very unclear. And he lived until he was almost six. And he had a beautiful suck, swallow, breathe cycle until he had a uh, a stroke in his brainstem and then you know, subsequently lost it. But that, I mean, I know anatomically he should not have been able to track and hear. And I get that, right? But let me tell you what, I'd walk in the room and start talking sweetly with my big old thick twang that I can turn on and off. And I go, hey, sugar bee, you ready for that bottle? Let's do this thing, darling. And you know what? That baby would turn to me. He would look at me. He would smile and start tongue pumping until he couldn't. And then and then that season changed and we were in a new season. That's where you always have to assume competency. Yes, absolutely. A hundred percent. Also, how cool is it that we get to do this? I mean, we get to have, we get to help our patients break bread and that's beautiful. It is such a, and, and you know, I'm in Louisiana, you're in the South, Jess is in the South, you know, it, here in the South, um, meals are, we you feed know, people. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's such a, a social, I mean, it's that way everywhere, but like, you know, when, when someone's having a, a hard time in their life, what do we do in the South? We bring them a casserole. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I make mac and cheese, baby, or I bake you some cookies. <laughs> we bring them a casserole. You know, it's a comfort thing. It's a sign of love. It's a way to show respect and, and, you know, it's just such a, a, a big component. It's such an emotional component and being able to encourage participation in that is probably one of the favorite things that I do is to be able to allow someone or, or enable someone using fees and lots of compensatory strategies to be able to stay on that oral diet as long as possible in our geriatric population and doing the best thing, best I can to respect their wishes and, and advocate for the each patient that I see. And, and I love that about our field. I, I could always tell when somebody had died in my family because it was the one time my grandma one time grandma would make yeast rolls. So if you came home and you could smell the yeast rolls when you got off the school bus, like you know somebody somewhere has been called to the other side. But right, like, yeah, yes, yes, yes. So what's That's unfortunate funny, about it funny. is is that those supplies aren't typically covered by insurance, and so another way sort of bringing it back home another way of advocating for or the SLPs can help advocate for their patients with dysphagia is asking them um are you able to afford these like is purchasing these supplies that i'm recommending going to create financial hardship for you 
Because I think sometimes we just assume that they're going to be able to buy, you know, eight Dr. Brown's bottles or, you know, a whole, like maybe they're trying a new cup every week, trying to identify the, the one that works and that can be a financial burden. So making sure that we're asking that and then referring if they, if they come back at you and you come to them from a genuine, honest place, like, you know, is this going to create a financial burden for you? And I don't like to phrase it as, can you not afford it? Because then that can be sort of stigmatizing. But I like to, to mention it as, is this going to create a financial burden? And if they come back with, yes, it is going to create a financial burden, then you can refer them to the Dysphagia Outreach Project's Dysphagia Food Bank. That's why we're here. We are fortunate enough, enough to have a bunch of amazing donors and sponsors who give us the ability to help these families and answer questions and help refer them to people if we need to. Um, but their application for assistance is super easy. We created it in a way that it can be completed from a smartphone. And it takes about 15 minutes, 15 to 20 minutes to complete um, if they're doing it in a thorough way. They can screen or take pictures of any documentation that they may have that we ask for. And um, it's very easy process for them to, to get through it. So once they apply, usually within a few days, our food bank team, if not the same day, our food bank team will respond, they'll ask some clarification questions, and we'll get relief sent out the door to them pretty quickly. So you know, as an SLP treating people, if you, if you're asking this, you know, of your patients in your families, um, and they come back with a, yes, this is a financial burden, please don't hesitate to refer them to us. That's literally why we're here. Have you, do y'all, have you know, Dr. Reva Barwell with, um, Savories? Yes, we do. Yes. I love Reva. Okay. Cause her, she's got those transitional crackers for the adults and for the peds. And I yes. use that a lot patients. Absolutely. Yep. And those are, you know, welcome. If, if you have some that you're not going to use, Reva sends us some, we would love to, to be able to give more. We, that's one of the things that we get a lot of requests for is those transitional solids. So, you know, if anybody has some that you're not going to use, <laughs> um, you're welcome to do that. You can also go, we have an Amazon wish list. We have Amazon smile. So if you do like I do, I just bought PPE, a whole bunch of PPE for my fees business today. And I use my Amazon smile so that they get a uh, DOP gets a portion of it. We have lots of different ways that, you know, you could do that. But if you want to donate to the food bank, the Amazon wish list is a great opportunity to, to see kind of the fun things that we need. Can, can you please make sure that you send that to myself and Miss Annalisa Nicolatis? Because Annalisa does um, all the social media and she'll make sure that the wish list and the Amazon smiles piece gets shared as well. Not a problem. Yes. Beautiful. Okay. So I have to be time conscientious, which me being a timekeeper is hysterical because I hate that. But like if someone does want to volunteer and I know that the cup runneth over, but we all want to help, but if someone wants to volunteer, how do they reach out? What do they do? Aside from Amazon Smiles, <laughs> Amazon Wishlist. <laughs> Absolutely. First thing is go to your phone and switch over to Amazon Smile. <laughs> and and choose the Dispatch Outreach done. Project as, our, um, as your uh, nonprofit of choice. But then also go to our website. We have been in the fortunate position of having more volunteers than we've had jobs for. So currently our um, volunteer application is closed, but we're going to be adding some job postings soon. So keep an eye on the volunteer page so that we're looking for very specific needs. 
email us team at dysphagiaoutreach.org. If you have any special skills or anything that you want to bring, or if you want to donate things, any questions that you may have team at dysphagiaoutreach.org. And our amazing Katie Golin will um, guide you to the department that you need to go to share our social media posts. That's another great way um, that you can help us volunteer and spread the news, uh, spread the word of what we're doing. So sharing our social media posts, you know, and we've got some more opportunities that will be coming soon. So participating in our, our fundraisers and things, sharing the word about those. We've got a lot of really great projects coming out uh, over the, the course of the next year. So definitely keep an eye on our website and our social media and we'll share some more opportunities. And if you have an idea or a resource, like anyone who's listening, email that team at dysphagiaoutreach.org and maybe that'll spark something and you can have your own little project. Absolutely. Yeah. We're always looking for people who think outside of the box and who are go-getters. So if you have something that you would love to accomplish and would like the support of DOP to do it, then email us and we'll, we'll have a conversation. Excellent. And, and y'all, their Instagram handle is all one word, dysphagia outreach project, all lowercase. I know that doesn't matter. Why do I sound like I'm 80? Okay. And <laughs> at least I didn't say at with like, you know, quotations in the air this time. Hillary, Jessica, y'all are literally changing people's stars. So for all of us that benefit from the work that y'all are doing, you and everyone at Dysphagia Outreach Project, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And um, most excellent. Okay, y'all heard it there. Go check out Dysphagia Outreach Project at on Instagram <laughs> and everywhere else. Hey friends, thank you so much for listening to Understanding Dysphagia. Remember that if you'd like to earn credit for this episode, complete the accompanying audio course registered for ASHA CEUs on speechtherapypd.com. And if you are interested in joining speechtherapypd.com, I have some exciting news. This month, in honor of Dysphagia Awareness Month, June 1st to June 30th, 2021, for every registration with speechtherapypd.com that uses the coupon code capital D, capital O, capital P for Dysphagia Outreach Project, $10 will come off every single subscription, every price, whether you want the little package or the big package, and that $10 will in turn be donated to Dysphagia Outreach Project. So if you want this episode that grew your evidence-based practice, to pay it forward a little bit more, join speechtherapypd.com and don't forget to use the coupon code DOP for Dysphagia Outreach Project. Happy learning, y'all.